Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This is a conversation I had with Lawrence Mooney, who is the host of Dirty Laundry Live. He was nominated for the Barry Award at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival this year and also won the Sydney Comedy Festival's Best Australian Act Award. So he's an all-round excellent comedian, really sort of having a burst of, of success, which is always a lovely thing to see in somebody who's very good at what they do. He's a determined person, a very, um, I don't know, he has strong ideas, which I really enjoyed engaging with. I can't say I agreed with him about everything. Uh, and I, you know, wasn't entirely sure of my footing, which is often good, I think. I can, I can be too sure of my footing and it's always good to meet people who throw you off balance and undermine your certainties. Email me on alicerfraser at gmail.com. Uh, come see my show Savage on the 24th of July at the Sydney Comedy Store or on the 27th of July in London uh, at Mama Bishara's charity shop or all through Edinburgh every night at 7.30pm at the Three Sisters Gothic Room. So that's terrifying. If you would like to come to any or all of those or send your friends, I would appreciate it a lot. Uh, that's it for me today. Uh, I hope you enjoy having this conversation with me and Lawrence Mooney. I, that sentence came out wrong, but I'm going to go with it because I'm having this conversation with you. You're just a very quiet interlocutor. <laughs> You're having tea with Alice. Sure, thank you very much. Um, um, and excuse me, I would like some more. Thank you. She was probably judgmentally not bringing it. How dare you assault? Yeah, exactly. You're not meant to do milk in some teas. So, does anything make you angry at the moment? Not as much. Um, I actually am going through quite a happy little phase. So, um, really appalled and angry the other day. I watched the Four Corners um, episode on Apple's work practices in China. Oh, wow, yes. And the fact that you know, there's Indonesian tin miners out there, illegal Indonesian tin miners, who are basically hosing away cliff sides to get tin quartz and there's cave-ins and people get buried alive and die mm. because there's a massive call for um, chicken quartz in the world to use in technology. Probably what makes me angriest about that is not only the wrenching poverty mm. that is part of the world and ultimately will always be part of the world because somebody will always earn the least and be at the bottom and be at subsistence level and rather than um, hitting the street and begging or giving up, they'll take massive risks. Yeah. And that will often be to service the first world. 
but what also makes me angry is emotive, deliberately emotive documentary making. I fucking really hate it. So you are angry at the plight of these people, but also angry at being manipulated into... Yeah, don't manipulate me. They kept putting up the Apple brand saying, you know, Apple have got this policy, but yet they do this. Yeah. No mention of Samsung, no mention of the hundred other um, technology manufacturers that work in the developing world. They will also be paying illegal tin lines for tin cores. Yeah. Unbalanced, emotive, deliberately manipulative. You're a liar. You're a fucking liar. I don't care about your documentary anymore. I'm up. I'm off the couch. I'm going to make a too. Yeah, that's interesting that you yeah. don't. Is that because you've been on the other side of the kind of artistic? Well, it started with um, uh, what was the guy's name that made um, Mike dumb. Walsh? No, oh no. Mike Walsh. Yeah, you're on the right track. Michael... Michael uh, Moore. Michael Moore. And his um, documentary, Bowling for Columbine, mm. where he leaves the portrait... Where he, first of all, he ambushes Charlton Heston, who is the head of the National Rifle Association, the NRA, and was renowned for saying from my... Well, their phrase from my... You can pry, yeah, you can hands. pry my gun from my t- cold dead hands, yeah. yeah. You know, they're allowed to have their slogan... And in America, they're allowed to have their guns. It's in the Constitution. Yeah. And they're also allowed to have a head of their organisation. So let's back the fuck away from Charlton Heston. He's just the head of the NRA. How do you feel about the dead man who was really never given an opportunity to say? Yeah. He was manipulated and ambushed. And then Moore, who I think is a bit of a prick, actually. Yeah. He comes across to me. I I don't think the screen lies. Yeah. Um... I, I thought his his first stuff, the awful truth, those documentary series were great. Yeah. But then he he understood his gimmick and followed it hard. Yeah, and then. And as a result, he's disappeared. You know, he's disappeared because people, I think, largely think he's crazy. Yeah. And, and he, you know, if you've got to, and I suppose the left wing or people with ideas are going to be hard on people with ideas. I mean, yeah. Uh, we're. we're more critical of ourselves than we are of the right. Yes. So like, make something objective and make it honest. The truth will do its work. Yeah. If it is, I mean, it is true, and it's 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 bad enough. It is. Toffee. Uh, toffee, toffee and biscuit. Anyone? And almond. It's Sorry. like a. What are they called? A Compre- yeah, it's like a Florentine, but just mm. almonds. It's very good. Sorry, you were about to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for nuts and sweet things, combination of nuts and sweet things. Mm-hmm. But a couple of things, I think. One is like, we've always had slaves. We're, me- we're better at hiding them now. And it's not good for the slaves to be out of sight. You can treat people much badly, much worse, if you don't have to look them in the face while you do it. It's true, because if slaves are there, toiling in the cotton field, then right-minded people are going to say, that's wrong, they deserve to be paid, Mm. and they deserve to be free, and they're emancipated and people champion their cause. And I guess... Yeah, or even if they are still your slaves. They've been slaves for longer than they've been emancipation. But if you have a slave in your house, you're like, well, he's my slave. Even if you don't question that... 
if he looks tired or sick, you go, take a day off. Because it's not human to be that cruel, with some exceptions. It's not human to look another person in the face and say, oh, you know, you're going to have to give away one of your children because you can't afford to keep them. It's only corporations that do that. Yeah, but that's, again, that's an institution. It's only institutions that can treat other people that badly, I think. I don't think corporations actually do much at all. They're blind organisations. Because people are doing it for people. Mm. Corporations are a bit of a cop out. But that's exactly what corporations are. They give you the opportunity to abdicate responsibility for what you're doing and not think about the consequences of it. Mm. So you can just do your job because the structure of a corporation limits your job to the part of the job that you do. And nobody is actually keeping the slaves. You have the accountant who's looking at the numbers and saying, oh, well, we need to cut costs here. And you have the HR person who's hiring people who are, you know, you, everyone has a part of it, but nobody... So they could also defend their position by saying, essentially, they're slaves to it as well. They're mm. wage slaves. They're not board members, they're not shareholders. Yeah. They're not paying huge money. They're raising children. They're pursuing an aspirant lifestyle. You say aspirant with some disdain. Well, yeah, you know, it's it's just a way of subjugating us all to a pursuit of money and consumerism. That, you know, the person next door or my brother or my friend has this and I want that as well. This is what I want in my life. And, it, you know, that just is an acceleration to the end. So we all surround ourselves with all this stuff. We live in an incredible country. Yeah. Where we have a lot of time and money. Just between us two now, there's a lot of time and money mm. at this table. Mm. And we're in, you know, the top percent in the world in terms of our clients. And we still just constantly fucking whinge about our positions in the world and about the governments that come in and we, you know, elect the governments with the worst policies and intentions. And we're not prepared to pay higher taxes to get rid of our, not just our debt, to, to pay for our futures. Yeah, the carbon tax thing was very disillusioning for me. Where people. Well, the mining resource rent tax. Like we've got a finite resource there, and some people are making an absolute killing. And they went to war with the government to try and bring them down because they didn't want to pay more of their fair share. Yeah, I, yeah. The, just the idea that you can get something for nothing, or put off, put off paying until later. The whole credit economy, I think, has fucked our heads in terms of like moral stuff, in terms of financial stuff. Can you afford it? If you can't afford it, you can't have it. Yeah. Save for it. Save. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to save. It's financial independence. And Simone de Beauvoir said that no one, and by extension no person, can have happiness until they're financially independent. That's true. Yeah, Virginia Woolf's uh, Room of One's Own is also that manifesto. Similarly, just 
space and time and independence is freedom. And without it, you're a slave one way or the other. Time, the old time is money. Time is not money. Time is a lack of money. You're only on the clock when you've got nothing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I talk about this a bit in my show, which I'm now finishing up here before I start my new show. What are you doing? What, my show? Yeah, what are you doing? Everyone's a winner. Uh, it's about why I quit being a lawyer. Right. I was a corporate lawyer for a year. A year and a day. I thought that was a good, a good amount of time. To, why did you quit? I'd say, come see the show. Uh, but couple of things and what isn't in the show is the fact that I grew up with a mum who had MS and so I didn't believe in the future in the way that everybody who was working there believed in the future. Everyone who was working there was assuming that by the time they quit their jobs when they were 65 or 70 they would have time and health and energy and they wouldn't have anyone to look after. They wouldn't have a sick parent or a sick spouse or a sick child. They were paying in their lives on a gamble that they would be able to enjoy themselves at the end of that time. Yeah, that it's the illusory kind of advertisement ideal of retirement. Yeah. You're just old and there's the breeze in your hair and you've still got a youthful body and no it doesn't whatsoever, like crazy it, adult children or sick parents. And your c- capacity to enjoy yourself. I mean, if you think about how much you enjoyed yourself when you were like six years old, just the pure pleasure that you felt in minor things, I think that time now is more valuable than time in the future. Yeah, I, I'm 49 and I'm having the absolute time of my life. Yeah. I can remember, you know, beautiful illuminated times when I was a child mm. playing and running around but my adult life's been much more happier than my childhood yeah yeah absolutely yeah independence and the right to choose and autonomy yeah it's everything and you know all the things that come along with adult world and wine and restaurants and sex and performing and this beautiful wonderful career and the ability to get on stage and travel and freedom from sibling rivalry and madness. Did you have rival... Well, I'm the youngest of three, so, you know, there's sibling structures that always impact on you. And as the youngest, I probably had a pretty good ride from, you know, with the love of the mother. Yeah. But there's also, you've got to contend with two older brothers. Oh, brothers too. Yeah. So I have a five minutes younger brother, so I'm equal of two. A twin? Yeah. And five minutes you, older. Is he, uh, is he close to you? Or yeah, we're very close because we looked after each other as we grew up. Dad was working very hard and Mum was sick, so we right. just... I would, I'd say, I respect him more than almost anyone else in the world. That's a weird thing with siblings because, like, the the love can't be paralleled in any other relationship, Mm. but they can also ridicule you and make you feel less than more than anyone else in the world. So it's an interesting dichotomy that it's like they accept you completely for who you are and and not accept you at all. 
Oh yeah. Of, you know, by the same token, the opposite applies. You can bring them down with a comment, but also they understand your love for them is unconditional. Yeah, I don't. I think Ken and I have an unusual relationship uh, in that way, which is <laughs> not that kind of unusual. Like a slightly paternal, like a, like a parental, mutually parental towards each other because we had that. We missed that. Yeah, a little there's elements bit. of that, I reckon, in most sibling relationships, people with parents as well. Yeah. You know, that famous psychology book from the 70s, You're Okay, I'm Okay. <laughs> the vision of society being parent, the adolescent, and the child. Yeah. And that we're all, you know, living in those different levels, sometimes simultaneously. And I haven't read that. Although one of the things I find most reassuring when I'm upset is those local maps in cities which say you are here. Right. I think, okay, good, at least that's something. Yeah. Um, there's a famous travel writer, Walter Wright. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know one it is, but anyway, he says that wherever you are, that's where you are. Yes. Right at that moment. And it's very much about being in the moment. Yeah. So if you're, you know, travelling in India, for example, don't do the comparison thing of what is it like back home compared to here, which is inevitable in order to you know get something in perspective. Be there, be right there in that moment, mm. and don't think about where you come from or where you are. And maybe it's just a thing for life, but you are here is a very good maximum. It's good. It's good for me, anyway. It's brought up with existential doubt, so it's nice to know that I'm here. Because of the sickness of your mum. Because of the Buddhism of my dad. Right. And the sickness of my mum. So how did the Buddhism of your dad cause an existential crisis within the child's head? Oh, there's just no... In Buddhism, there's no self. There's no you. It's just a, a series of functions... Uh, correlating, cohering, you know, cells and, and things coexisting in the same space in the same time. There's no part of you that could not be disengaged and and examined and uh, found to hold no essential self. So what about the conscience and the subconscious? Where do the little parts of that play? Those are also parts. So they're not themselves you. They're just... Uh, a phenomenon that arises out of the coexistence of the other things. Um, just as if you put, you know, the parts of a circuit together, you get an electrical current. Similarly, if you put the parts of a person together, you get a, so what's a the personality. Positive? What's the positive in that? I'm trying to take a positive that we're all in this together and should. That kindness to others it. is as important as kindness to yourself. Uh, that. Um, you shouldn't get too attached to things. That I think right. for Mum it was very useful watching herself disintegrate. That she's not the body. Yeah, that she's not the body, and she well, and not the mind as well, because her mind went after a while. Um, so what's Buddhism's take on death? Where do we go? What happens? Depends on what kind of Buddhist you are. It's the same same as almost any other religion. You got lots of different brands and breeds and superstitions and local things that have been tied into different stretches of it I mean it's the end for most of it but your 
for other for other Buddhists, you, they believe in direct reincarnation, which is sort of a Hindu import. Yeah. Um, and others believe in a sort of a consequentialist reincarnation, like all of the things you do in your life continue to redound through the future. So, yeah, I, I like to think that your idea of in a spiritual afterlife is that you exist in other people's mountains mm. and thoughts and maybe they pass on a little bit of you to somebody else, something you've said or the way you behaved or something and then that once those people who remember you are dead becomes an element that is eternal but it has no name. Uh-huh. So something my great grandfather might have said was passed on to a grandchild that was passed on to my mother who's passed on to me and I say it and it may be you know, something that I like saying that makes life a little bit lighter for me that go, then goes on and his name, her name, my name is not attached to it, it's just part of the eternal ether and I think that is eternal. That's interesting. My mum died in October uh, and I'm still trying to figure out what I can do do about it. <laughs> to grieve. Not just to um, just to do. I mean, partly I n- no longer have a, a function or a purpose because I was always necessary or useful in somebody else's life. And partly, yeah, I just don't know what what I can, what I believe, uh, and what I can do to sustain or maintain some memory of her other than, you know, remembering her. Like, what can I do? I mean, you've got to also confront all of the emotions that you feel. Yes. Do I? Can't I just do a lot of work and forget about them? One of the most important emotions is probably being subsumed or, you know, pushed down is that you might be happy that she's dead. I'm more relaxed. And that's that's okay for people to say. Yeah, I'm not. And it's not a a dark thing or poisonous thing to think that there might be a sense of relief, both that she's free from her illness, but that you're free from her. And artists, to an extent, need to kill their parents metaphorically. And once the parent is gone, And often it, it you know, might be some kind of confrontation with the parent or conversation or a complete you know, break from if they're an oppressive force in your life, and especially a negative force. But in the case of actual death, for an artist it's a, it's a major step forward because you don't have that answer to them anymore. Although you probably will subconsciously try and please your parent because we're all answering to someone and it's a good question to ask yourself who are you answering to because it might be a dominant friend from high school it might be a sibling it might be a hero that you've never met but we're all answering to someone and we're all our own shopping thinking better be nice you're also shopping with someone and when you're at home doing anything you're doing it for them not just yourself and you've got to find out who that person is in your head that you're answering to I think my dad is more uh, the judgmental person. I always think with my shows or if I'm doing a joke that's pushy, I think, could I explain why I would, to my dad? My mum was never like that because she was sick from when I was very young. 
I was... Uh, I didn't need her approval. She was always just so incredibly, like, loving and, and kind and sweet. And, you know, like I said, when she was maybe about two weeks away from dying, I did a TEDx talk. And I came back into the hospital room and I said, Mom, I did a TED talk. And she said, oh, well done, darling. What's a TED talk? Right. You know, she just was that kind of... So she set you free a long time. Yeah, very, very long time ago. So if you're backstage, you're looking into the father's eyes and you're what he Yes. Is he still alive? He is still alive. And present? Absent. Present, very present. Uh, and that's one of the things, like... I'm happy that you've stopped unhappy except if anyone questions me at which point he is very staunchly a supporter right so he's very it's interesting he's gone from saying oh have you thought about maybe being a judge's associate to saying have you thought about getting a television show you know yeah. <laughs> that which is nice it means that he's he is approving to a certain extent easier to be to become a judge's Assistant, yes, because there's a probably a, a path that's laid out. Yes, whereas a TV show is just a wild spin of a wheel somewhere. Yeah, that can happen. Oh yeah, I, I, I sort of I'm trying to explain that that's not exactly how it works. Uh, yeah. Oh, you should write a movie. You should. I should. Yeah. I should. You, you should write a successful movie. Yeah. And you should have a high-ranking TV show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your father's right. He's right. Yeah. What about you? What was your parental break? Well, my mum was a great supporter. I wanted to be an actor very early on. She said, that's great. Any idea was great idea. But she also tempered it with some very sober advice, which is, um, you can't get far with a bag of clothes. You can go as far as you want with a bag of money. Make as much as you can as soon as you can. Mm-hmm. Money's not a bad thing, it's how you make it and how you spend it. And so it was this uh, later on in life in share houses where we all cockaded one another in the left wing black hole of money's evil and capitalism is bullshit. And Let's change the world, the world with $2.10. Yeah, which is incredibly limiting all of a sudden you shut your mind to the idea of letting money in. Mm. You need some Reiki therapy to try and, you know, blot out that blockage. So my mum was great in that sense. Her mother was a businesswoman who had a couple of milk bars and died very early on, 45 years old, she died of an asthma attack. And so mum was on her own. And she was all about moving forward. Mm getting something in this life to make it easier for yourself. But the most important thing that you have is it's your life. You do what you want. Mm. Whatever you want to do, you do it. You would always tell me how you follow the day of clients. It's interesting. Which is, you know, also don't spend any precious cash on all your shit. Yeah. Look after your money. And that part of your mind is then free. Yeah. You don't have to worry about all the bullshit. Hang on, there's been some. Paul Stevens was a great poet um, who worked as an insurance actuary his whole life. Yeah. Because unless he was financially secure, he couldn't be artistically free. 
and the idea that you can just up and I might sound a little parental here, I suppose, up and quit your job and hope the world's gonna, you know, come and sit in your lap is a, is a destructive idea. Yes. Make sure you're financially and materially safe and then you can set yourself free artistically. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good good advice. I think if I'd stayed in a law firm, I would have uh, been... I would not have survived uh, one way or the other. And then there's the, the other thing. You've got to get out of that thing that you feel is holding you back. And oh, it yeah. might be your way to a bit of security and you've got to take that risk. Yeah. And it's all about taking risks. And whenever you talk about this process, you end up contradicting yourself completely because I just said you well, know, sure that you It's a balance, right? You're safe, but you've got to take risks. You and can't. one of the risks is jumping off into this world and saying, I'm a comedian. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a stand-up comedian. Yeah, well, I'll t- I take any work. I still... Actually, I haven't for a little while because I've been okay, um, but I still take editing work. I still take tutoring work, and that's all my parents, you know, the, par- the fact that they gave me an education, like a really good education. I can walk into yeah. a job. It's a nice safety net. Yeah, it's a really nice safety net, and I can, you know, I've got universities on my paper. I can, you know, tutor, I can... So what are the letters after your name? I'm an intellectual snob. I never went to university. I went to drama school. Ah, you're an autodidact. And My uh, favourite kind of people is self-taught people. I guess I am an autodidact. Yeah. So I would also give credit to you know, a selection of friends or my selection of friends, which is like people that can educate you and inform you. And they also you know, play a big part. Uh, I have a Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Law, Masters of English Literature from Cambridge. So what are those letters? B-A-L-L-B-M-Phil, brackets, Cantab. M-Phil. Master of Philosophy from Cambridge. Cambridge. Excellent. Cambridge, of course, has great um, smokes imaginary pie, (laughs) stretches imaginary braces. Adjust monocle. And... um, Cambridge, of course, has a great pedigree in terms of showbiz people. Yes, that's kind of one of the reasons why I really wanted to go was to do the footlights and be in that and be part of that and just be there. Yes, yeah, I did. I really, really, really enjoyed it, possibly at the cost of my studies, but it was great. (laughs) It was great. Uh, What is the footlights? Is it a year, or can you do it the whole time you're at Cambridge? Um. The Footlights is their, it's a comedy society and every two weeks they have what's called a smoker, which is like a a show. And that is uh, on, I think it's, oh, it's Tuesday and Saturday. One of them is audition day and one of them is performance day. You go in with your script sketches usually, uh, but some people do stand up and uh, you're there with your script and you've got a friend to do it with you or you don't have a friend, in which case there's somebody there in the line who you're like, hey, I'll read for you if you read for me. You walk in, you read the script, uh, and the committee decides whether it's in the show. My goal when I got there uh, was to be in every single smoker of the year, and I did that. Right. So is that 50 or 40? How many smokers in a year? 
uh, one every two weeks, so not not fifty oh, okay. or forty, so, so yeah. it's twenty-five. Yeah. So twenty. Yeah, and uh, then wow. I wanted to do the touring show, but I I couldn't. I had to come back to Australia. And so, so how yeah. long have you been doing stand up here? Stand up was relatively recent. I started that mainly in uh, I did like one or two small gigs at Sydney Uni. Um, but I started it properly in New York in 2010 because I went there and didn't have any friends to do sketch with. Or, and I was kind of a bit, uh, so I didn't have the... New York's a weird place. A lot of very enthusiastic first meetings and not a lot of second meetings. Uh, right. so which is why, draining. Why are people so keen to meet with you and then meet with you? Um, what is their end game? They, everyone there is hoping that someone else can do something for them. Oh, okay. Wow. So every conversation that you have, you just feel like you're being like, what can I get from you? What can I get from you? Can I fuck you? Can I buy you? Can I get like that? Everything. They're trying to figure out what you will give them. Right. So how can you advance mine? Yeah. Cause. And I, I didn't take opportunities. They're just better at hiding that. Do you think maybe New Yorkers are a bit more honest, but we have a second and third meeting because we're kind of wrapped with guilt or we're living up to this national attitude of, you know, we're good people and we're not all in it for ourselves? I don't know. I don't know. A lot of bullshit artists. That was great. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I am very bad at us at doing the thing because I, f- I'm, I find myself mortified by the idea that people might think that I might be trying to get something from them. Right, so you're bad at asking for what you want. Very. Uh, very uh, much and that's again probably the Buddhist thing selfishness and stuff or dad wouldn't approve that thing it's interesting when you say that's a Buddhism thing because it's also being raised by English parents don't don't blow your own trumpet people don't like it when you're full of yourself you don't give yourself compliments out of it yeah so when people and it took me a while to learn I've learnt it but when people go so how did you go tonight it's like oh, I said alright yeah it was good and I'd hear other comments go oh, I fucking killed yeah oh, I just absolutely blitzed they were an awesome audience and it's like actually if you go well and they're a great audience they can tell people it's okay but yeah. I kind of also like that circumspect English attitude to don't talk about yourself constantly. I had to learn first how to say even when I was enjoying things and then still working on saying when I don't enjoy things or if I'm not pleased with something or if I think somebody's doing something wrong. And then I eventually will get to the point where I can ask people for things. Um, that I want in the future rather than just commenting on how things are now. Very, it's very stoic, like Greek stoicism level of don't be too happy, don't be too sad. No, 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 just, I mean, Buddhism is comparable to that if you if you have a Western philosophical... And what do you like within relationships of that sort of stuff? Can you ask for what you want and tell people what you don't want? Um, is that where you're best at it? I am... I was not and have learned... It's context-based, I think. It's so contextual, but it's also 
something that you know you take habits and yourself and relationship to relationship so it is context based but it's you negging it's where you give a compliment with a sting in the tail but you did it the other way around so it's like this woman <laughs> came up to me after Perth a show in Perth broad a broad patina a white face it's better than saying oh your face is narrow that's the that's the alternative true you have a chin as opposed to no chin no chin that's true I do have a chin big blue eyes Tiny, tiny little goat eyes. So, you can shut the fuck up, you've been blessed with a With a wide face, face. yes. Oh no, I mean, I'm I'm fine. I I was talking about this the other day with Rob Hunter, actually. Yeah, that's, I am glad I have cheekbones. Uh, Cheekbones and a personality means I won't uh, evaporate at 35. Which I think some very pretty young women do. They just disappear. Where do they go? They become invisible and resentful. They become invisible to whom? To the people that they are interested in having the attention of. Right. Do they want that attention up to the point of 35? I think that... I don't know if they want it, but I I certainly know women who were very, very beautiful and who resent not being beautiful. So you're saying that 35, they turn ugly? No, they, they say that you become increasingly invisible. People don't pay attention to you, people don't look at you, people don't... Well, I don't think that's true. I don't know if it's true, I'm not 35. Uh, well, but you're not when you get to 35, but there's going to be a lot of men who are 35 plus that are still living at 35-year-olds. Apparently and some that are 35 minus that are still looking at 35-year-olds. That's true. That's uh, that's something that's happened for the first time now. I'm getting old enough that I have a, a uh, one of the younger comedy boys hit on me the other day, and I was like, I was so impressed by it because I was like, I don't think I've ever been hit on by from that angle before. The like, wow. you're the impressive older woman angle. It made me feel very strange. What um, is hit on? Somebody that starts a conversation with you, or somebody that invites you to their boudoir for sex? Somewhere in between invites, those things. Someone invites you out for a, a date or a meeting where it's not like, let's go and hang out, there's something more Something intended. more, into, I, I don't know. I think so there's, it's, it's an intangible, that the essential element of, you meet somebody, so it's like a, there's a, a, different boxes that can be ticked, but not all of them necessarily add up to being hit on. It's like a fallacy would, of composition. I would hate to think that there's some women out there that I had no intention of hitting on, and I know there are, that think that I've hit on them. And so You're a very charming you. person. I don't think I do that, but I do think that is something that some women do. Um, yeah, it's like, don't. And men too. Yeah. And men, you know, and yeah, it's... It's not just women, but... So it needs to be... credit yourself with something that is not They need to... They need to find you attractive. Uh, but that can also be friends. You, you know, you, you meet people who you like and you feel an affinity for. And you can tell that by the way they look at you and the way they approach you and the enthusiasm with which they meet you. I see the cartoon dog with its eyes going, oh, and it's not going... Yes, so, so that, that may or may not be enough to 
to qualify for being hit on because you're like, well, they, they're interested in me, but I don't know how or why, what angle they're coming from. Or even if it is that they're sexually attracted to me, if they've got a partner that just kind of want to get to know me because they feel an affinity. So you still can't tell from that. And all men are, all men are sexually interested in I don't think that's true, but uh, I, I've been turned down before. Uh, so. A man actually, you said, let's have sex, and the man said, no, I don't want to have sex with you. Yeah, you he said it would be complicated. Well, maybe he was, had deeper feelings for you. It's, maybe yeah. he had a partner. No, he didn't. Uh, maybe he he was in England and I was going home. He was in England and I was in Australia. Like, I just can't make no, I did. That I put myself out pretty far. Really? He like, said it was complicated. He said it would be complicated. And I said, well, can we just sleep in the same bed? And he said, no, I don't trust myself. Because oh. I'm attracted to you. And I was like, I don't see the problem. But he, didn't, he slept on the couch. It's very upsetting. Um, Maybe he was a very proper gent and he wanted to advance the relationship a bit further before having sex interesting I don't know it was very upsetting um, but, but you were upset by that oh yes devastated this bloody colonialist patriarchal fuckhead patriarchal oh I know what's best right. a patriarchy isn't about me it's about a system that men and women participate in yeah. blindly and for their own fortunes. Oh, yeah. So you're as much a patriarchal blockhead too because you could have taken control of the situation. Couldn't rape the guy. No, no, no. <laughs> That's where a woman needs to, rather than hopefully um, expecting a man to control the situation, but he says no and you accept that and feel embarrassed and insulted by it, so no, let's have sex. You sell the idea. Uh-huh. Pitch, a pitch meeting. Retreating to the couch and looking at your wounds and blaming him. Oh, I don't blame him. I can take control Alice Fraser. I don't want to have sex with someone that doesn't want to have sex with me. No, there's not wanting to have sex and also cajoling and making the situation right or talking through what the complexity was mm. and I know there's a lot more to the situation than you're letting on because you're know, being proper about it women should take control just as much as men come expected to yeah I agree with that although I do think there is a difference between men and women yeah a massive difference and part of that difference is differing testosterones which means differing levels of aggression and that includes in sexual situations. The thing is, you know, that we're both men and women, very different. Very different sexual stimuli. Men are quite visual, and women are a lot more inside the head. But ultimately, those two bodies come together, and there's pleasuring yourself and pleasuring someone else, and they're pleasuring you. And then, you know, the divide is. Hard to see. Mm. You become one. 
Yes. That's where the difference finishes. It's like, you know, that's what's going on right there. You are one. So how you come to that is really up to yourself. Yeah. Totally in gender necessarily dominates that. You can borrow from another gender. Watch how women go about it if you're a man. Watch how men go about it if you're a woman. Yes. You know, the natural kingdom is always mimicking. So you think men should uh, put on more mascara, do some lowered eyes and, and bent necks? Absolutely. In fact, women love that feminine coyness. Yeah. Russell Brand, for example. Yeah, he's a, a nice gay men blend. That women love. Uh, of course they should learn that, because that kind of like erect head forward classic kind of eight type beating chest man isn't attractive to a lot of women who are you know urbane and cosmopolitan take the french man think about a french man smoking a jetan and his hands and his wrist and his crossed legs and his innate femininity and he's holding a glass but then he probably couldn't get more masculine men in a sense than the Frenchman. they're not afraid to wear a beret or a scarf or to embrace their femininity. Mm. But in the way as a woman, fuck women, just what they do. Yeah, absolutely, we should borrow from one another. Women should fucking man up a bit. Every, you hear every man talk about some woman out there. She's just like a bloke, she's amazing, we drank beer all night, she's filthy, she's fun, and you know, Wow, is she sexy? Mm. I think the opposite is probably the truth. Be a lot more men should woman up a bit. Oh, really? Embrace the feminine. Embrace the masculine. I disagree. I think more women embrace the masculine than embrace the feminine, and I think a, a very good, if surface and facile example of that is how many men wear skirts versus how many women wear trousers. It's more acceptable for women to present in masculine ways than it is for men to present in feminine ways. Mm. And so who's the oppressed now in this patriarchy? Oh, everyone. I think men are as no, oppressed by the patriarchy what, as women. What, what's more normalised for to do? For women to wear skirts or um, men to wear skirts or women to wear trousers? Women to wear trousers. So that's, I would say that in that sense women are a lot more equal than men. Men, men aren't allowed to be feminine, especially in Australian society. Yeah. I'd say that men are probably as oppressed by the patriarchy here as women. Because mm. oh, not yeah. allowed to step outside that masculinity. But I would say, I'm talking more globally than Australia, mm. I'd say men, particularly European men, embrace the feminine. Yeah, I think one of the problems of the patriarchy is that men get this very narrow definition of masculinity, indicative of the fact that we still don't take men being hit by women seriously. No, we don't. And, or, in family breakdowns, um, the psychological torment that can be rent on both sides, Mm. where there are no scars, and where decent men endure without any physical consequence, they don't lash out physically. And so ultimately, 
it's never seen as a dire situation. But there's never any flashback, and they just suffer, you know, psychological manipulation, and not being able to see their children. My grandfather, um, on my mum's side, started the first family court in Australia in the 70s. And of the five members of that court, he was the only one who was not bombed or shot at. One of them had his wife killed. Uh, one of them had his car blown up. The other one was shot. Because there, it was the first time when they had this no-fault divorce and men had their children taken away from them. Yeah. And, you know, there's contemporary examples of, you know, Farquharson killing his three children on Father's Day by driving them into a lake and at its absolute bitter end. There's parents, and particularly men, who think that the best way to get back at their wives is to kill themselves or kill their children, kill themselves and their children. And, that's and I think that's an example of patriarchy screwing men up because it doesn't give you tools other than violence yeah, I reckon to express your emotions. You're not allowed acceptably to go and cry. I'm not, I'm not holding any system responsible for a man that decides to kill his children as an act of revenge. He can fucking die. Yeah. Yeah. Are we going to finish on that salutary note? Yeah, we probably should uh, wind up. Um, <laughs> what are you here doing? What's your show? This will my come out on Thursday, by the way. So, uh, My show runs until March the 14th at Adelaide and then uh, is in Melbourne. It's called Surely Not. And it was really a reaction to a lot of the shit that was going down in the world in the last 12 months. But political? Then, yeah, kind of political, but then it was um, hijacked by the death of an uncle just before Christmas. And so it's pretty much about life and death. Mostly about death. And how, you know, one of the great laments on the deathbed is, I wish I had have enjoyed it more. <laughs> and we should all use that as a bit of a maxim. Because people enjoy it, but they want to... You can enjoy it more. Mm. Just enjoy it as much as you can. It's very brief. It You're going to die, I suppose. Not I'm going to die. That's what my dad said to me when I was five. Right. I think five's too early to consolate your own death. Way too early. So to him from there, it's fucking irresponsible. He might be able to argue his case, but I don't think a five-year-old needs to think about their own death. I think it needs to dawn on a child at some stage. Mm. Often with the death of a pet or out of the blue, because it's too much. The idea that you're going to die is not useful as a child, because time is this abstract stretched thing you know as a child a week can seem like it went forever a week it's forever mm. a year is an eternity because a year is a fifth of your life yeah that's purely mathematical and yeah. it's on a sliding grade from there which is another reason why I think waiting till you retire to have fun is stupid because, because years are worth less in yeah. terms of they become a 70th of your life and everyone who's ageing says oh time moves so quickly, oh, where's the year gone, all that shit, it's a super mathematical sliding thing, where if you look back and think, what am I doing in 2011, oh god, where did those four years go, that's quick, but if you think, what did I do in those four years, then it stretches out again, so there's this abstraction to time, 
that a five-year-old doesn't need to be made conscious of. They're, they're going along beautifully. They're living their lives just how they should be, whatever they're doing. Yeah. My dad always told the truth, which was the nice thing about him. You don't think people should tell the, on the truth. On the truth. To, to hide behind, I only tell the truth, is one of the most immature fucking defences anyone can ever have. What it says is, I abrogate all responsibility for any hurt that I may have rained down with my words. I just tell the truth. I've got this terrible affliction, this ailment, this disease. All I can tell is tell the truth. To just tell the truth is a five-year-old's thing. It's, it's fucking immature. You choose when you be honest. You choose truths. It, well, certainly I think the truths... Choosing, choosing the truths is the part that I find... Like, the sky is blue and you're a cunt. Which one I choose to pay attention to and disclose to you on any given moment not you're a cunt I mean the abstract person in my example is a cunt um, thank you very much <laughs> but yeah I get to choose which one of those truths I tell they're both true no there's only one thing that's true there one's one's true and one's an opinion yeah a subjective opinion yes it's not true it's just it's just not well, the sky is also not blue, except Absolutely. according to subjective observation. Everyone's observation. The sky's blue. Yeah. Looks blue. <coughs> Refraction or something. Yeah. It's blue. <laughs> it's blue. But yes, I agree with you. Um, I think that... But I, I think that honesty is a powerful tool. And you just use... You know, you can, you can choose not to say something. Mm. You can choose to... But also, um, helpless confession, where you think, I need to get this off my chest and tell somebody else. Who's benefiting that? Yeah. You are. Yeah. You're, you are unloading yourself and you're fucking up somebody else's life with your need to confess. So carry your own water. Choose your truths carefully. Because that idea that I just, all I say is the truth, so I fuck off. It's a damaging. I will pound you in submission with your fucking truths. Okay, on that note, uh, Lawrence Mooney, <laughs> having had black tea and an almond biscuit, we're having tea with Alice. Thank you. Thank you.